Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Essex Church, home of Kensington Unitarians. It's great to have a, nearly even a full house this morning on a, on a sunny morning too. Welcome, one and all. Uh, for anyone who hasn't met me before, my name is Jane Blackhall. I work here at the church as an outreach officer and a, I do a bit and, bits and bobs of this and that about the place to keep it running. Uh, our minister, Sarah, is away this week, but she'll be back next week uh, for a service as usual. Today, I'll be leading the service. Our opening words are by Sarah Stewart. Bring who you are as you enter our church this morning. Bring your best self and your struggling self. Bring your mistakes and your triumphs. Bring your shortcomings and your recommitment to good. Bring yourself here and open your heart to beauty, to truth, to the door that is open to the presence of God. Here in this church, we're trying to walk together on the peaceable way, trying to hammer out division, indifference and hatred and all that separates one from another in this world. We try and we will fall short, but held in love, we'll try again. We come together this morning as a church to bow our heads in prayer, to raise our voices in song, to remember our promises and vow to live by them once again. I'm gonna light our chalice now as we do each week, the symbol that connects us with Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists the world over, those who came before us and those who will follow. For every time we make a mistake and we decide to start again, we light this chalice. For every time we're lonely and we let someone be our friend, we light this chalice. For every time we are disappointed and we choose to hope, we light this chalice. These words are by Jim Burklow. It's a reimagination of the traditional Lord's Prayer in his own language. Let's pray. <coughs> Dear one, closer to us than our own hearts, Farther from us than the most distant star, you are beyond naming. May your powerful presence become obvious not only in the glory of the sky, but also in the seemingly base and common processes of the earth. Give us what we need day by day to keep body and soul together, because as clever as we are, we still owe our existence to you. We recognise that to be reconciled, we must live peaceably and justly with other human beings, putting hate and bitterness behind us. We're torn between faith in goodness and our awareness of the evil in the world, so deliver us from the temptation to despair. Yours alone is the universe in all its majesty and beauty. Amen. This is a reading by... Don't worry, there's got some laughs in it. This is a reading by Johan, or Johan Hari, a British journalist, entitled, We Are Wrong About Being Wrong. 
Here's a series of questions that should be fairly straightforward, but are actually excruciating. When were you last wrong? What has been the most recent screw-up at work? What's been your biggest mistake in your personal life? We all have a weird and paradoxical relationship with our mistakes. We can see that everyone around us makes errors all the time, yet we are always astonished when it turns out we are getting things wrong too. Perhaps it's because deep down we see being wrong as shameful proof that we've been sloppy or stupid. This belief pervades our culture. We applaud the public figures who stay the course, even if it's wrong, and boo the ones who admit a mistake and U-turn or flip-flop. But what if, apologies, what if, apologies for the irony landslide here, we're wrong in the whole way we think about being wrong? <laughs> the author, Philip Roth, calls life an astonishing farce of misperception. Our abilities to perceive and reason are painfully limited while the world is unutterably complex. We are peering at an entire universe through a drinking straw. So the meaningful question about any human being isn't, does he get things wrong? With these limitations, we all make big mistakes. The real question is, does he take time to understand his mistakes and learn from them? But you can only do this regularly if you know how to think about mistakes in a healthy way. The best scientists and engineers have developed rigorous techniques for constantly checking their claims against the evidence, ruthlessly hunting down their errors and working out what they mean. For example, after two planes collided at Tenerife Airport in 1977, killing 600 people, the airline industry introduced radical new protocols. Crew and ground members are now actually rewarded for reporting their errors and screw-ups. The result? Airline accident rates fell dramatically. Now compare that to the way we conduct public life. One of the most predictable applause lines for any politician is to boast that he won't back down, look back or say sorry. Tony Blair wasn't unusual when he bragged, I can only go one way, I've got no reverse gear. But a car without a reverse gear would be banned from the roads. Yet somehow we've structured our public life, so this seems like a sensible statement well, anyone who ever admits a mistake is talking themselves out of a job. You can hear the carping interviewers now. How can we ever trust you again if you were wrong about this? We make it easier to continue in error than to admit error and put it right. If we want to face up to our mistakes more regularly, then we need to change the way we think about them. If we see them as proof of our own incompetence, we will continue to puff up our chests and pretend our mistakes aren't there. Is there? Is there a different way? Error is an essential step in the process of finding the right answer. Every scientist leaves it behind a trail of disproven hypotheses and papers shot to pieces by colleagues. But these errors are not seen as shameful, rather they are part of a process that brings us ever closer to the truth through experimentation. Similarly, James Joyce, thinking about all the drafts he wrote that failed, said, a man's errors are his portals of discovery. But error may be even more fundamental than that, even for the survival of our species. From the moment we are born, human beings are creating theories about the world based on limited evidence. It's how we survived, how we made it thus far. 
Errors are often simply this necessary impulse reaching too far or misfiring. So the impulse that makes us wrong is also, perhaps, the impulse that makes us human. You will get something wrong today, and tomorrow, and every day of your life. So will I, and so will everyone else you know. You don't have a choice about being wrong sometimes. Mistakes will be your lifelong companion, but you do have a choice about whether to approach your error in terror, so you suppress, ignore and repeat it, or to make it your honest, open ally in trying to get to the truth. This piece by Unitarian Universalist Minister Robin Tanner being, begins with a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who resisted the Nazis and who was the founding member of the Confessing Church. Why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God is holy, but a brother knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Who can give us the certainty that in the confession and the forgiveness of our sins we are not dealing with ourselves but with the living God? Our brother breaks the circle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. Tanner continues with an account of his experience of confession as a child and her reflections on it as an adult. Um, where's the booth? Having been raised by a Christian on the periphery New Age mum and a Buddhist-leaning dad, I was a little perplexed at my first confession. I was eight years old, attending a Catholic school. That's a whole different story, but let's stay with the confessional booth for now. It, it was a room, sunlight pouring in through a window with two softly padded chairs. I sat down, beginning with the words we memorized. Funny, the things that stick. Forgive me, Father. The priest smiled and interrupted me. What have you done that you wish you hadn't done? This wasn't in the script. Oh. Mm -hmm. uh, We sat together in silence for a while. Then it began like a few drops when you're not certain it will rain, but suddenly the clouds open. I shared mistakes, some intentional, some unintentional. I nervously waited for the penance. How many Hail Marys? Instead, he asked in a kind tone, What could you do to make it better? I've learned since that this is not everyone's experience of confession. But it's why I became 
an early advocate for the practice of confession in our churches and our everyday lives. You see, I also grew up with a granny who reviewed her day every evening. If she found she caused pain, she would call the person to apologize. Even as a young child, I got a few phone calls. The Confessing Church was a movement begun among German Protestants during the Nazi regime. After the government attempted to unite all German Christian churches into one pro-Nazi church, the Confessing Church resisted the takeover. Among their founders was Dietrich Bernhofer. The Confessing Church was not entirely successful, in part because many of its members were not all in. I long for progressive religious communities that are confessing communities, places where we admit our wrongdoings, are held accountable and called back into covenant. More and more, I dream about a community where a liberating love insists on justice and power redistribution, on right relationship, a community where truth flows freely amongst her people. I know it's possible. I once lived in its grace and challenge. I believe it can be. But we are going to have to be all in. We've now come to a time of meditation, so you might want to put down anything you don't need to be holding. Get yourself comfortable in your chair. I'm going to read a, a poem by Nancy Schaffer to take us into a, a time of extended silence, and that will be finished with the sound of our bell. This, uh, this poem by Nancy Schaffer is about the mistakes that we inevitably make in the course of our lives. Because we spill not only milk, knocking it over with an elbow when we reach to wipe a small face, but also spill seed on soil we thought was fertile and isn't, and also spill whole lives, and only later see in fading light how much is gone and we hadn't intended it. Because we tear not only cloth, thinking to find a true edge and instead making only a hole, but also tear friendships when we grow and whole mountainsides because we are so many and we want to live right where black oaks lived once, very quietly and still. Because we forget not only what we were doing in the kitchen and have to go back to the room we were in before, remember why it was we left, but also forget entire lexicons of joy and how we lost ourselves for hours, yet all that time were clearly found and held. And also we forget the hungry not at our table. Because we weep not only at jade plants caught in frost, and precious papers left in rain, 
but also at legs that never walked, although from the outside they looked like most others. And also we put words said once as though they might be rearranged, but which once loose refused to return, and we are helpless. Because we are imperfect and love so deeply, we will never have enough days. We need the gift of starting over, beginning again. Just this constant good, this saving hope. Some of you know that here at Essex Church we're, we're currently doing thematic ministry, so we choose a theme for each month and we explore it from a number of different angles. So this is the first Sunday in our month on triumph and disaster. The particular sort of disaster I want to think about today is the sort that can happen when we make mistakes. Of course a mistake need not be a disaster. Most mistakes are easily fixed if we notice we've made them and they're soon forgotten. But I'm particularly thinking about those occasions when what starts out as a little mistake turns into a big one. When we make things worse by digging in our heels, refusing to admit we're wrong, compounding the error, missing the chance to change our mind, change our ways, and digging ourselves into a ruddy great hole in the process. We all make mistakes. Hopefully we can all agree at least this much. Mistakes can be big or small, inconsequential or catastrophic, and it's not always obvious which is going to be which. Sometimes we can make an apparently small mistake and find that it's turned into a snowball rolling down a hill, getting away from us somehow and wreaking havoc on all in its path. If you're anything like me, if you've got a cringe-ometer that goes up to 11, as you hear those words, you might be internally cringing and recalling mistakes of your own, times when you were so sure you were right and you turned out to be wrong or when you really thought you were doing the right thing and it all backfired somehow. I'm sorry if at this moment you are reliving flashbacks to regrettable life experiences that you'd rather forget. But if you're a cringer like I am, you might find the words on the front of the order of service at least a little bit helpful. It's a pithy little saying by the 13th century Zen Buddhist thinker, Dojin Zenji, who says, life is one continuous mistake. Now, in a way, I find that quite reassuring. Uh, the contemporary writer on Buddhism, uh, Brenda Shoshana, also a psychotherapist, she's reflected on the wisdom of this saying, and here's what she has to say about it. Life is one continuous mistake. If we're truly able to absorb this statement, it becomes much easier to become real. 
One continuous mistake relieves us of false feelings of shame, guilt and self-hate every time we fumble and err. It boldly and clearly informs us that the very nature of life itself forces us to fall down, make mistakes, be made a fool of and then get up again. It is this very process of life that diminishes the foolish pride we are so filled with. During my life and Zen practice, if there has been a pothole in the street, like clockwork, I fall into it. If there was a mistake to be made, I made it, not only once, but again and again. Instead of fearing to leave the house, I've learned to enjoy being in the potholes when I land there and spend some time looking around. Rather than hating myself or hating the potholes, I simply say, oh, I did it again. After fully experiencing a particular pothole as many times as I fall in it, then getting out becomes easier. By now, I've become quite good at falling into potholes and just climbing straight out again. As a result of all this, I'm quite familiar with the terrain of potholes and I find a strange beauty in them. As I've done this many times, they hold less attraction to me. Now I fall in and get out in a matter of seconds. No damage, no shame. That's by Brenda Shoshana. And just as a, as a side note, I put this reminded me of the poem that may be familiar to, to some of you, Autobiography in Five Chapters by Portia Nelson. I'm not going to read it, but it totally fits with that reading, and that's a treat for you to enjoy in your own time and pin on your fridge or something. Let's, let's think about, if we can bear to, let's think about the whole world of mistakes we can possibly make and just a few of the tremendous variety of ways in which we can be wrong about things. We can be wrong about facts. There are a variety of ways this can happen. We might be unaware, uninformed, misinformed, misled, deceived, or just forgetful. Or we might be in a position to know the facts, but we've misunderstood them in some way. I expect we can all think of instances, some personal, some political, where a person or a group, an institution or a nation has made a bad decision because they got the facts wrong. Or we can take a position or engage in an action that is in some way morally wrong. Let's keep this simple as we can. Let's say by wrong we mean things that we know at some level are likely to harm other people or the society at large, or the planet at large. Sometimes we do this inadvertently, perhaps because we aren't fully aware of our situation and how our, our action or our inaction might impact on others. Sometimes we are pushed in this, into these uh, wrongs by circumstances when we find ourselves in a moral dilemma where we feel we have to choose the lesser of two evils. We can occasionally make a seriously wrong judgment or take a very wrong turning in life. We might do something that seems to have huge fallout for ourselves and for others. Something we truly regret, the sort of scenario where you might well wonder how on earth you got yourself into such a catastrophe. A disaster, you might say. Of course, in all of these scenarios, establishing facts, making moral judgments and life choices, it's not always easy to know when you've made a mistake or to easily tell right from wrong. The world is complex. I'm confident of just a few basic facts, and it's getting fewer all the time. One plus one equals two, and last time I checked, the capital of Burkina Faso is still Wagadougou. But as soon as we start thinking about anything more complex than we might encounter in a general knowledge quiz, if we think about the workings of the world and our place in it, it's hard to be sure about anything much. And on the one hand, it's good to have the courage of our convictions, 
But it's also important to remember that any given moment we might be wrong. Factually wrong, morally wrong, on the wrong path. By keeping this possibility in mind, we stand a better chance of nipping errors in the bud. If we notice we've gone astray, then we've got an opportunity to put things right. There's a saying that's attributed to Rabbi Simcha Bunam of Pajuka. He said, the mistakes man makes are not his greatest crime. Rather, his greatest crime is that the, he has the power to do teshuva, to turn his life around at any moment, yet he does not do so. In that reading from Johan Hari, we heard earlier, he pointed out that our society's got a really unhelpful attitude towards mistakes, given that we make them all the time. Anyone in public life who admits they got something wrong, tries to change direction, they're gonna to be torn to shreds by the press for flip-flopping, for U-turns. As he says, we make it easier to continue in error than to admit error and put it right. More widely than that, society encourages people to bluff, to put on a bullish front, to act like, this, like we're certain when the wisest path might be to say, I don't know. Surely, we're better off collectively making it easier to tell the truth, to be authentic when we're unsure. Isn't it better for society if we look for ways to help people redeem themselves after a mistake? To support people who realise and acknowledge they've erred in large ways and small, and who sincerely want to turn again and put things right, if they can, of course that's not always possible. To start afresh. The attitudes that Johan Hari is drawing attention to, this zero tolerance for admitting error in public life, and perhaps also the, the habit of shaming and shunning that's come to the fore in the years of social media, isn't this a recipe from going from wrong to wronger? As individuals, as organisations, as nations, as a species maybe. Getting ourselves into a bit of a hole and deciding to carry on digging deeper and deeper. Why not say, if, you're notice, if you notice you're in a hole, perhaps stop digging and ask for help getting out of it. I think one of the ch tasks of a, of a church community like this one is to try and counteract some of these unhelpful habits of our wider society. And in that second reading from Robin Tanner, I think she gives us a clue about a spiritual practice that can help us to respond to our human fallibility in a healthier way. Robin Tanner is a Unitarian Universalist and she speaks up in, in, in favour of the practice of confession, which is perhaps surprising. In her story, the priest just asks two simple questions. What have you done that you wish you hadn't done? And what could you do to make it better? To me, those questions seem really helpful. I don't think we're going to be installed in a confessional box in, in the foyer anytime soon, but there is a practice that we already do here at Essex Church, which is in the same spirit as that which encourages us to take a good, hard look at our lives, kindly but honestly, to consider if we're making any mistakes, going astray, taking the wrong path, to look at our actions and attitudes and see if they're in accord with our highest values. Anyone who comes to our monthly heart and soul gatherings will know that at each one, we spend a good long time in prayer and contemplation together. We do four things. We do naming prayer, that's giving thanks for what's good in our lives. We do loving prayer, that's lighting candles for the people and situations that we care about. We do listening prayer, which is sitting silently together and listening for the still, small voice. And we do what we call knowing prayer, and that is about honest self-reflection, about knowing ourselves. 
That's the kind of closest thing I think we've got as Unitarians to a practice of confession. And that style of praying was based on something that the UU minister, Eric Walker Wickstrom, suggested in his book, Simply Pray. Here's what he's got to say about that knowing prayer practice. We are all a mixture of saint and sinner, and this is an opportunity to see and know ourselves in all our subtle shadings. This is not a call for guilt or self-criticism, but for honest self-appraisal. Unless we acknowledge our faults and failings, there's nothing we can do about them. This type of prayer gives us the opportunity to give voice to the broken, wounded, worried places in our souls. It's a chance to do a fearless moral inventory, to use the language of the 12-step movement, and to give voice to what lurks in the shadows. The life of the Spirit calls us to be authentic, whole people, and knowing where we're weak and wounded is essential to meeting this challenge. Eric Walker Wickstrom and if anyone wants to know more about that style of prayer I've got all sorts of bits of paper I can give to you another time it's a it's a, a practice you could take home and make your own It's a really unusual Unitarian prayer practice so to close this this little interlude um, I'm going to invite you to join in a little time of knowing prayer together so we can all try the practice out together today. Um, as for the meditation, I suggest you put down anything you don't need to be holding. It's a kind of meditative time. There'll be a few words of guidance, then interspersed with silences for your own internal reflection. I think the whole thing together will be three or four minutes. So take a few moments now to look back over the last few days, maybe the last week of your life. Consider all the good that has happened, everything you've done that you're proud of, achievements, kindnesses, ways in which you helped make the world a bit better. And now gently consider the things which didn't go so well. The things that you're not so proud of. Mistakes, faults, ways in which you might have caused hurt intentionally or unintentionally. Become aware of your moods and feelings, your words and actions over the last day or so. Looking back, what has brought you joy, consolation and a sense of being alive?
looking back, what has disheartened you, made you uneasy or bad-tempered? Looking back, how have you used your time, energy and gifts over the last few days? As this time of knowing prayer comes to a close, you might like to silently address your highest self, or you might like to speak inwardly to God in your own words, perhaps asking for guidance on how to make amends and start anew, perhaps asking for forgiveness and a peaceful heart, or perhaps asking for help to live an ever more fruitful life. Let's just take a few moments more for those silent prayers of our hearts. God of all love, spirit of life, we give thanks for the ways in which we are already flourishing and using our gifts for good in this world. In the days and weeks to come, may we be kind to ourselves and each other, rededicating our hearts each time we slip to the path of love, justice and peace. Amen. As we depart one from another, let our hearts be secure through every human season. Let our hearts be secure in seasons of anguish as in seasons of joy, in seasons of failure as in seasons of success, in seasons of uncertainty as in seasons of security. Let our hearts be secure in the knowledge of this dual reality. We are worthy recipients of the love and support we can never earn and we are worthy providers of love and support that others cannot earn. Let our hearts be secure, for hearts know and understand and will respond if invited in. Amen. <laughs>